Your podcast starts after this quick message from Clear. The average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for allergens and germs to get in your nose and body and wreak havoc. That is, unless you regularly clean your nose and sinuses. So for healthy breathing and a strong body, use Clear Nasal Spray. Clear is a natural nasal spray featuring xylitol, an ingredient clinically proven to work against bacteria and effectively clean, not just rinse, your nose. Clear Nasal Spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. In fact, in a recent study, researchers found that xylitol nasal sprays like Clear are just as effective as leading medicated nasal sprays. For better breathing, get Clear today. That's spelled X-L-E-A-R. You can find it at all major retailers, CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens, Sprouts, Whole Foods, and everywhere else. The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast. Dr. Taz. Superwoman Wellness. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, where you know that I'm determined to bring you back to your superpower self. Joining me today is Megan Fitzgerald. She's a global healthcare strategist, an investor, an academic, and an author. That's a great mix there. She has worked in every domain of healthcare from the frontline patient care through the Fortune 500 while serving as an associate professor at Columbia University. She is also a a a doctorate of public health at New York Medical College, College, focusing on health policy and the social determinants of health. She earned a Master of Public Health from Columbia University and a Bachelor of Nursing from Fairfield University. She teaches strategy and the business of healthcare at Columbia University in New York. Her new book, Ascending Davis, Davos, I'm probably saying that wrong, A Career Journey from the Emergency Room to the Boardroom was just launched by Forbes Books. Welcome to the show, Megan. I'm so thrilled to have you here. So nice to see you. A big fan of the show and your work. So an honor to be here. Thank you. And say, Dave, is it Davos? Davos? I'm saying that incorrectly. Yeah, it's Davos. Davos. Named after okay. where the, yeah, where the World Economic Forum is held. I always say it. I've seen it. I've even followed them on uh, different platforms, but I always say it incorrectly. So now I know. Well, welcome to the show. You've got a really varied career. I mean, when I was reading the bio, I was chuckling a little bit. It sounds like you've been in every domain when it comes to healthcare, from business to academics to teaching and so much more. What sort of inspired your journey? What have your experiences been? And what are you hoping uh, to really get out there when it comes to the business of medicine? Yeah, great question. I think the common thread is I've always liked science and patience for a really long time. My career, as you mentioned, it was very brief. It was as a nurse way out west working in emergency rooms. And then I spent a good portion of my time on an Indian reservation, the Tohono O'odham Indian Reservation down in Nogales, almost south of the border, uh, deep, deep into Arizona. And really working on that reservation, you brought a lot of primary care. You were oftentimes the only care. And so I saw at a really young age, the importance of population health, which led to me getting a master's in public health and then eventually uh, a doctorate. So I think the common thread throughout my career was this idea of healthcare at scale. And really the only way to do that is to take care of uh, a population, which I think now uh, public health is very in vogue because of the COVID virus. But for those of us in public health, it's been pretty popular for a while to think about you know, not just one person, but many. 
Well, I mean, I'm fascinated by that as well. You know, I've built a career so far, actually came from the emergency room as well. That was the, those were my medical origins, so to speak, but built a career in integrative medicine, but I'm constantly haunted by, you know, how do we grow this thing? How do we scale it? How do we make it available to everybody? Because the model in which I'm practicing and many of us are practicing is not really a truly scalable model. So this is something I wrestle with all the time. What do you, tell us a little bit about your book. What inspired you to write the book? Because that probably will paint uh, a, your journey, like really how all of this has transpired from being on that Indian reservation, being in the emergency room to then being in the boardroom. Tell us a little bit about how that all transpired and how it's reflected in the book. Yeah, I think you can relate to the story better than anyone going from, you know, clinical to the media and business side yourself and yes. scaling. So this started with the title, the, the subtitle of the book is From the Emergency Room to the Boardroom. So how do you make pivots in your career is one message in the book. Because mm -hmm. like you, my, my brand for a while was a clinical brand. It wasn't a business brand. I wasn't able to apply to strategy jobs or marketing jobs because they said, well, this is all that you are. And I've learned over time that you're not, you know, you have many chapters in your life yes. and oftentimes you have to make a pivot and a pivot has to be something that um, you're qualified to do. It's oftentimes closer to home in your core skills. And then after you make the first pivot, then you find you can set up your next pivot. So leaving nursing, um, I got a job building dialysis clinics on the Indian reservation. I asked to be part of the team that was doing the build. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was done with that rotation, I wasn't just clinical anymore. I was a business builder. Yeah. And then when I went into marketing, I asked to work on all the strategy projects. Then when I was done with that, I was no longer a marketer. I was a strategist. Mm -hmm. And little by little, you're kind of laying bricks on top of your foundation, whatever it is, if it's a clinical background or a marketing background, right. you start with what you have. And so a lot of the book was to take someone through the journey of how you too uh, can make a pivot. Uh, and it was also the trials and tribulations, as you pointed out, of working in almost the entire 18% of GDP. Right. There hasn't been an area of healthcare I haven't worked in. So it was a fun way to tell a journey give some advice, but also kind of a bit of an expose on what life is like in all of healthcare. Well, I think that's fascinating because I can resonate with so much of that. You know, I've had a lot of these different roles, probably not as many as you've had. In fact, this summer I was supposed to go do an MBA because I felt like I'm doing all this business stuff, but I can't speak the language of the business guys. Like they start using you know, these, I can't even think of the terms right now, but they start using these big fancy terms and I do this. But then I realized when I get to the bottom of whatever they said, I've already been doing that, you know? Yeah. So I was like, I need an MBA. I need to at least be able to speak the language. And then of course with COVID and everything else that happened, you know, that got shut down. But, um, you know, each let's, let's dissect each of those arenas. And I'm more, so there's so many conversations we can have. We can have a conversation about pivoting your career and how to do that. And I definitely want to come back to that because I think every woman can relate to that and may be at a crossing point in their lives. But I'm also equally fascinated by healthcare and the need to reform and change healthcare. So as you kind of walk through these different places, emergency room, boardroom, academics, you know, uh, reservations, 
Is there an underlying theme you can put your finger on that we need to do or be thinking about as we tackle healthcare in the United States? And I think it became very bare and very apparent to me, at least, with the COVID crisis, you know, the disparities, the discrepancies, the focus on certain things, the lack of preventive care, like all of these things I felt like came to a head. So what is sort of the, you know, maybe the three things that really you would like to see shift when it comes to our healthcare system, policy, managing, planning, all of that other stuff. Yeah, I think the first starts um, with seven cents of every U.S. healthcare dollar goes to public health. That's it. It's seven cents. Hmm. It's a little more than a nickel. Uh, and I think what we realized is that this idea of um, preparedness, we were not prepared and we don't spend any money. We don't give it any time. So I think the first thing is public health, I think is finally getting its due. It's no longer an elective in school or some weird nonprofit degree that people get that didn't want to get an MBA. I think everyone's now realizing that, you know, epidemiologists are are cool cats, very important. So I think for me, I would love more focus on public health. Mm. I would love it to get the same type of discussion that biopharma gets and vaccines get, uh, because a lot of it is preventative and it's done at the population level. So for me, if I was in charge for a day, I would look strongly to reinvest um, in public health. Second, I think, and you just pointed this out, you know, a third of the COVID deaths were in seniors in long-term care facilities and nursing homes. Mm -hmm. I think most people before COVID said, I don't want to be in a nursing home. I think people want to be in their homes. So what can we do to enable primary care or a virtual setting to keep as many people as possible in the home? Mm. And I think finally, I would love it if more people wanted to get public health degrees. I teach at the School of Public Health, Mm -hmm. but people assume because of private equity, I teach at the business school. And when I say no, I teach at the public health school. They're like, oh, what happened? Like, you don't <laughs> something went wrong. And now they know nothing went wrong. So I think, you know, this idea of putting more light, education, and money on public health, and also thinking about healthcare a little bit differently from settings. Mm-hmm. This idea that you couldn't have a nursing home feels so foreign to people. Right. But I think as you said with COVID uh, and the and the big spotlight that it's shined on some populations, um, we're seeing that COVID was not an equal opportunist. Some people got hurt more than others. Absolutely. And then, you know, you and I are talking in the middle of what I'm calling the second pandemic, which is the race war and, and how we're feeling in this country and really honestly across the world about what's happened in terms of racial issues. But there was a racial story to COVID as well. And there's a public health story there too. Fill us in on what you're seeing there, what your experience has been with that and what's your interpretation of what's happening when it comes to minorities and people of color getting health care or getting their health needs taken care of. Yeah, I think, you know, I read a stat this morning, 6% of the population in Wisconsin is African American, but like half the cases were COVID. So that is another group that disproportionately was affected by it. And for those of us in public health, we've been writing and publishing on inequality for decades. And now the world is finally listening to it. I guess for me, I wonder, and I hope that this time it really sticks that it's not that we're all outraged and going to tweet something, but yet we're really going to do the hard work uh, and 
and the investment to look at that and try and change that. Um, I think this week there was at least five podcasts I was invited to to talk about inequality in healthcare, and I'm glad to go on them all the time, but I said, what are we doing a year from now? And so the same people that invited me to the podcast, I sent them an invite for a year from now to say, hey, what are we doing about it? I think also this wasn't done because of what's happening now, but 100% of the proceeds from my book go to the Harlem Children's Zone, and two weeks ago, I wrote a check for $4,000. So everybody that bought my book actually serendipitously invested in education at the Harlem Children's Zone because not everyone got to be homeschooled. Some kids don't have a school and so they don't have a home. So there was no place to go. So it went into food and computers and a lot of people don't have broadband. So I, I often ask people to change the dialogue. It's great you're aware of it. But then what are you doing that's about actionable. it? You chose to ask me yeah. this on your show. Yeah, you're yeah. you're making it stick. And that's yeah. what I'm telling people. Don't forget about it and wait for the next outrage no. to suddenly, you no. know, make and it involved. What is what do we need to do from a public health? Like, okay, let's say everyone does give public health gets the budget it needs. How do we get healthcare to these communities? Is it a lot is it a matter of doctors not going to these places or or clinics not being there? Or what what are you seeing as the the disconnect that groups of people don't have good access to healthcare. Yeah, the first is access. So is there a clinic near where a lot of these communities are? Mm. Is there a place to see a primary care doctor? Are you treated the same when you come in to see a primary care doctor? Mm. So to me, it all starts with coverage. Do you have insurance to see people? Right now, we had 30 million people lose their job. They lost their coverage. So a whole Mm. bunch of people became not only unemployed, but they don't have coverage. So for me, it all starts with equal access. Does everybody have access to care? Uh, And the answer is no, they don't. And a lot of people use the emergency room as their point of primary care. And that's not right. Well, you know, all of this makes me now want to go do a public health degree. But but these are are issues that, but here's what I would, and this is selfish, guys. So for all the viewers, I hope I'm not boring you to tears. But but how did you end up in the boardroom then? Where does the boardroom piece of the story fit into everything else that you're doing? And and private equity, because I can tell you my eyes go cross-eyed when people, we've had people come into the practice who are, PE guys and all that other stuff and the language, their language is what makes me want to go to business school because I'm like, what? (laughs) So so anyhow, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, now you'll call me. There we go. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh So I think along my journey, I went into the business side of healthcare, which is why I teach a class at Columbia now called the business of healthcare. I felt like a lot of clinical people weren't understanding the business side because no one offered classes. You didn't talk about it. You really doubled down on a lot of science and a lot of patient care. And now I think you're bringing to light almost everyone I know that's a physician or a medic. Half their job now is business. Right. They either deal billing or they're scaling themselves. And so the class really was to bring my experience working in the Fortune 500. As I entered the Fortune 500 after working on uh, an Indian reservation, I went into pharma for many years. I worked for Merck, I worked for Pfizer, Mm. and then I went into the access side of the equation where I worked for a pharmaceutical benefit manager called Medco. And then I went to Cardinal Health. So I made the rounds for almost 20 years around corporate America climbing, becoming president of a $10 billion division. And that's when I started getting the calls to join boards. Mm. You know, there's this terrible saying that a lot of females hear, and that is, you can't get on a board till you're on a board. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you get your first board? And so I've done a lot of help to help other women say, maybe your first board isn't your dream board, Mm -hmm. but it's a board that's local. 
or it's a board where you have immediate skills back to that pivot that you could bring a lot to the table. So just know your first board will look very different than your fifth board, but that's ultimately how I got to the boardroom. I was building a resume and a CV and a book of experiences that finally made me relevant when I hit my 40s uh, to join a board. And what I hope is that that doesn't have to be the case for other women uh, behind me. My goal now is, and I wrote an article about this, is when I get a call for a board, if I'm not available or I'm conflicted, I don't hang up the phone. I say, well, talk to my friend Taz, Mm. talk to my friend Jen. Mm -hmm. I have a pipeline of candidates that if you were willing to call me and put you on the board, then my recommendation should be solid. You should want to talk to my friends. Well, that's amazing because then for so many women out there who feel like they're stuck in their careers or they've hit a plateau of sorts, even for me, for example, where I, you know, mine is pure, like I feel like I don't have the knowledge, you know, you didn't run out and do another degree. I'm not hearing that in your story, correct? Yeah, you, you didn't run out and do another degree. What allowed you to move through these you know, sort of uh, rooms of a career without running out and getting more credentialing or more degrees or things like that? What, what advice would you give to women? Such a great question. So let me tell you about the pivot into private equity because yeah. I leave corporate America. I'm doing a lot of M&A and a lot of deal making. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, private equity would appreciate my deal making. They said, no, you don't have a master's in finance and you weren't a banker. Mm-hmm. So doors were constantly shut. And this is one of the more elusive clubs in America. I mean, less right. than 10 one of the managing partners are female. Mm. So even at the top shops, as much as people are trying, the path there was often through banking. And I came in through corporate America. So what I did is I almost worked for free for a year, Tess. I worked to get intimate and get close to private equity people and said, give me exposure. Have me understand what you're doing. Let me come to some of your LP meetings. Let me meet with some of your portfolio companies. I'll bring free value. I'll bring advice, which I know that you'll appreciate because I've worked all over healthcare. But in turn, I would like exposure and I would like to understand the field. And what I found in that investigation, back to what I said, I found that working for a family office, Mm -hmm. wealthy individuals that had Mm -hmm. more of a long-term vision and were more strategic, weren't looking to do deals and sell them and flip them very fast, was going to be a good fit for me. Hmm. So then my search got really tailored that I was looking at family offices. And ultimately, that's where I made a connection. I made a hit. And we wound up spending you know $4 billion in deals, which for many said that is unbelievable that I was able to do that within my first job. Yeah. But they didn't realize that I had spent a year really investigating what would be a good fit. I also called someone at a bank, Lazard, a very famous bank, Mm -hmm. and said, listen, I need to get good at debt financing. Debt financing is a big part of private equity. Mm -hmm. I was willing to be vulnerable, and I told them I'm not good at it. And he said, come on down. We'll design a debt 101, which was a debt 102, 103. Mm -hmm. I went down with a notebook, filled it, uh, and learned on the job areas where I felt like I needed to do better. And I tell people that all the time. You don't have to go back and get a degree. You can go on Khan Academy and learn statistics if you're not good at it. You can go buy the Harvard Business School puts their books online. You Mm -hmm. can go buy those books for free. So you can find where you have gaps. I also tell a lot of women, take a CFO to lunch. Mm. Understand how a company makes money. It'll make you way stronger in your job. It'll make you way more relevant in your job. And you'll also understand what's driving the company. I can't tell you how many of my friends would focus on a job. And I would say that's not even driving earnings this year. Right. It's like 1% of the company's profit 
You know, it's great to do it if you're getting an experience, but if you're trying to get to the corner office, you have to go where the sun is and you have to get those experiences. So you're telling me that it is essentially fortuitous that I cannot go to my MBA program, that there are other routes and avenues for me to get this information. And why is it, let me ask you this, uh, I feel like as women, we do a great job going into healthcare. We do a great job champion, you know, championing any given cause. We're activists at heart. Why is it we go cross-eyed when it comes to words like CFO and finance and debt worksheets and debt management and things like that? What happens to us? Why, why do we like, it's not just me. I know tons of other women too. It's like, oh God, no, you know? So yeah, what's right. happening there? Yeah, well, I dedicate a whole chapter in my book to finance. I break down ROI, mm-hmm. internal rate of return. I all the your metrics. book. Good grief. Yeah, all, all, <laughs> all, right. all, all the terms that, yeah. you know, I've learned, yeah. you know, working uh, in corporate America and now working in private equity. And the thing is, is a lot of women don't come up in those jobs. A lot of women come up in jobs that are marketing right. or you know, and sometimes corporate America puts women in senior jobs where there's not going to be a high profile press release if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. I call it like the safe job. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to put you over here in HR, not that it's not important, or we're going to put you over here in marketing, but you don't see someone said, yeah, we're going to put Taz up for the COO job. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do is get those experiences early. I tell my students now at Columbia, they say, what elective should I take? I go math. Anything with math, Mm. anything with finance, you could never, ever get enough math and finance. It's just a differentiator for you. Wow. And understand, find finance mentors. I'm now mentors to other women. They're like, Mm -hmm. I don't understand this. I don't really know how this company makes money. I'll say, let's sit down. Let's spend the time. Tell me why you don't understand what an MPV is and how to calculate it. Tell me why you don't understand what profit and loss is. Let's sit down and look at the profit and loss of this company. Find people where you can have safe space to ask questions. We ask each other these questions. We just don't want to ask them in a group and nobody wants to feel like they don't know it. And I think the higher you climb, suddenly you're expected to have learned it and you didn't. I had a guy recently, a COO said, I just faked it till I made it. I didn't know that. I I actually need to figure some of this stuff out now. So I think I tell people, take as much math as you can, even if it's online and at your own pace or you're reading books. Yeah. Find a safe mentor, find somebody where you can like ask these questions and just say, I don't understand this. By the way, there's no dumb question. If you don't understand it, right. it's probably because someone has a fancy term for it. Well, Megan, is there a place where women can go to find mentors or is it more just sort of combing through the landscape of where they are and who they know? Is there like a resource that they can turn to? You know, I know there's some women that have come out with firms, and again, I'll I'll look it up to get the name right, mm-hmm. like Elevate, mm-hmm. where there's women in finance that have now turned into mentors of women that who are not in finance. What I have found is you're within your own domain. So you're a business builder, you're mm-hmm. building a business. It's more likely you're going to talk to someone that is in a similar area to you growing your business or being in growth capital. You're not mm-hmm. in a fortune 25 right now right. where you have lots of costs, lots of employees. Mm-hmm. So I try and tell people, you know, tailor your needs and experience and your mentors to things that you're going through. So if you were to have a mentor now that was like running, you know, bank of America, no. that likely wouldn't be as relevant no. to what going through versus someone that might be in venture capital Mm -hmm. and has built a lot of businesses that follow a similar arc to what you're doing. So I tell people, find groups that are similar and analogous to the experience that you're currently in and try and find the mentors there. Now, one thing I've seen with most women is we like to play it safe. 
And we take, like you were saying, the safe job, the safe position. It's a risk to go work somewhere and not get paid and just count on exposure. I don't think the majority of women I've met are not really the fake it till you make it types, right? Most most women, yeah, you know, are very like, okay, I need I need all my boxes checked, you know, and that's just the nature of of kind of who we are, you know. How do you encourage women to get out there? take a risk, do something differently? What if they have financial pressures or obligations or, or childcare pressures and obligations? How do they navigate that very critical turning point? You know, I did it. I will tell you, I always tell, you know, I laugh now, but uh, I was working in the ER and, you know, I was the breadwinner at the time. My husband was still in school and I decided that this was my passion, integrated medicine, and this is what I wanted to do, but it was going to be a fee-for-service model. It was during the last recession. And so I'm like, I'm not going to make as much. You need to sell X, Y, and Z because our my standard of living until you're flying is going to be you know at a much lower level so we did all of that but we it was like almost like the joke was on me because I ended up surpassing all of my financial expectations and goals because it's not why I went into it but it's just kind of what happened but again like that was a big step for me and I don't know without my husband's urging that I would have done it and had I not done it I don't know that I would be where I am right now sitting with you and and talking about it. So we're, we're safe by nature. How do you encourage women to get out of that safety zone so that we do take some more risk? Well, you literally said that like three or four things that are needed. One, you didn't sit here and say that you had to have it all, mm-hmm. which I never subscribed to. Right. You're a choice. You made a choice. And so that choice had decisions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you weren't going to make as much for that year. And you had a discussion with your partner, mm-hmm. which is the second thing. The person you partner, marry, date, and decide to hook up with is the most important financial yes. decision you're going to make because yes. maybe you're going to lead and they're going to be behind. Uh, and you don't have all the time in the world when you're a female, it's, you often, especially if you want to start a family, right. you need to put that push on early in your career, or you're going to wait a few years and then put the push on after. So I think I often tell people have a short-term plan that's like one or two years, but also have a 10-year plan, Mm -hmm. especially if you want to be married or you want to live somewhere or you want to go back to school or you want to have children because the timing will matter for you. And then the examples you gave, who you're partnering with, having an open and honest dialogue with them, being honest that every choice means you may have to give something up. Mm -hmm. It may be geography. It may be money. It may be, you know, going back to school. Everything has a little bit of pain in order to have some gain. And I think sometimes we sell the mystique that maybe you'll have it all or you'll have none of it. At the end of the day, I found I have what I want. I have what I decided to make choices about um, and some sacrifice. And I knew that it wasn't always going to be easy. I also tell people, sometimes you have to take a lateral and nobody ever wants to hear that. They don't that. want to do that. Yeah. No, they don't want to do yeah. it. When you're picking up more experience. That means you might then jump two levels mm-hmm. faster than if you kind of zigged your way up there. Mm-hmm. So I've taken numerous laterals in my job, mm-hmm. but it was to pick up a host of finance skills. I took a job at Pfizer where all I did was forecast all the drugs for the company wow. for 20 years. Yeah. That finance experience ultimately led me to a very senior job and strategy. I would have never gotten it if I didn't take the lateral and the pivot over to the side. So sometimes you got to take the job no one wants. Sometimes you got to pick up the skills um, and get that feedback early. You know, be open to someone saying, Meg, 
you've got to pick up a lot more finance skills if you want to be in strategy or you want to lead people. You haven't led anybody yet. So you better find a team of two people to lead because you're trying to get a bigger job. So I find be in tune with feedback. Be really honest about what you're willing to give up. I find so many people are focused on title and money mm-hmm. and then they find out they're working for a toxic boss yeah. or worse, they're commuting three hours and they're miserable. Like do a health assessment before you take a job. It's a big part of the book that health is wealth. Don't find out three years into the job that you have no life, you're commuting for three hours and you can't stand who you're working for. You spend more time looking at a car sometimes than you do whether a job is a healthy fit for you. Mm -hmm. You should find out, is this a healthy environment for you? Uh, Don't wait until you're so sick that you can't navigate an exit ramp. Does your book have some of like a checklist or some of the ways to assess if this is the right job for you or a healthy job for you. Cause yeah. I do, I do see women all the time, like title is a big deal and then pay is a big deal, but they put all other factors aside. So are those resources in the book as well? Yes, they are. I ask questions. I, that's, uh, you know, someone told me a long time ago, sometimes just asking the right question is the way to go. Right. Is there childcare? Is there senior care? Is there a gym on site? Are they flexible with telehealth? Does everyone look miserable when you interview? Right, right. Look like a happy place. So what I'm doing is asking questions because I learned the hard way. Right. And I don't want other people to realize it someday when they're, like I said, I looked one day on the train and it was 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, why am I always on a train at 11 o'clock at night? Would not commuting be worth $10,000 to me? Mm-hmm. You literally need to have an honest discussion with yourself sometimes on the trade-offs. I love it. So much great advice. We didn't even touch executive women. Maybe real quickly tell me what you're seeing in executive women when it comes to their health. You took the power type test. You told me you're a boss lady, which I'm not surprised. Those are my go-getters. They get stuff done. So tell me. I also need need help. So I mean, that's what's so great. I I love your screening, by the way. It was an amazing screening. I recommend it to everyone to check it out at the end of this. It's really important because you got to ask yourself the question. What I found in my executive study was paradoxical, and you'll appreciate this. Mm -hmm. Most women look like they're in shape. They look healthy and happy. They have insurance. They might have access to a Peloton or a gym. It was all the psychosocial stuff. Lack of friendships. 20% of the executive women, the pet was their best friend. Mm. Most worked 70 hours. A cohort in my study worked enough hours beyond their normal hours to legitimately justify a second job. Wow. Most people, 48% could not see a doctor due to workload. Mm, we have that's to where change you come in. that. Yeah. Well, that's what I couldn't I'm, see a doctor. Well, it's superwoman syndrome, right? Like I, and where do you think that's coming from? Like the feeling of not being good enough, the feeling of competing with the guys, what's, what's sort of driving that behavior? I think the climb to the tough is the climb to the top is really tough. It's hard. Mm. Um, And I think if you don't get the tools early and you're not willing to, you know, ask tough questions of yourself and what you want to get out of this, you know, it could be a really grinding climb to the top. I have a lot of friends that have opted out. Mm -hmm. They still have opted up. They've just found their own halls of power. They Mm -hmm. decided to be entrepreneurs or be their own boss. Um, and that's why we see, you know, not very many CEOs in the Fortune 500. And we celebrate when there's like one more, like, right. oh, we can count all 15 of them or all 13 of right. them. And I, I think a lot of people are just opting out for different things that they want to do um, on their own terms. And they want to be a little bit more in control. It's very stressful to not have 
control of things and not feel like you're in an environment that uh, supports your health. I also think we're in a sandwich generation. Yes. Many of my friends are taking care of littles and now they're taking care of their parents. Elderly, yeah. And so they, yeah. yeah, they just come on raising their kids and now they're like, oh my gosh, I'm turning around taking care of my parents. This cycle just doesn't stop. And so it's very difficult to think you could take care of yourself, have a superwoman job while taking care of uh, either it ends of the spectrum. Yeah, you just can't. Superwoman syndrome is real. I've seen women technically have it all, but then end up with that diagnosis, end up with that disease or a marriage that's failed or something along the line. So that's why we've got to build that toolbox to do the things we want to do. Oh my gosh, it flew by. It went too fast. We'll have to do this again. We'll have to connect for sure. But the book is Ascending Davis, Davos. Oh my gosh, a career journey from the emergency room to the boardroom. Where can people find you? What's the best way to connect with you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at MMA Meg. You can find me on Amazon. uh, And when obviously you watch this podcast, find me at the end of it. Awesome. All right. Well, for everybody else, thank you for watching this episode of Superwoman Wellness. I hope it inspires you to reach, not be safe, and move on up to your dreams and your goals. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I will see you guys next time.